Turn with me, please, to the book of Job. While you're turning, let me express my appreciation for the invite to come and speak to you folks. I thank the world of your pastor. We've been without a pastor now for about three and a half years, and I encourage you to pray for your pastor and to thank God for him every day because until you're without a pastor for a long time, it's kind of like you don't miss the water till the well runs dry. Um, and we're trusting that our Lord will be gracious and send us a pastor in His good time. Uh, I want to read from Job 25 today. Job 25. And I hope, as Gene said, that the Lord will enable me to brag on Christ. Job 25. Then answered Bildad the Shuhite and said, Dominion and fear are with him. He maketh peace in his high places. Is there any number of his armies? And upon whom doth not his light arise? How then can a man be justified with God? Or how can he be clean that is born of a woman? Behold, even the moon and it shineth not. Yea, the stars are not pure in his sight. How much less man that is a worm, and the son of man which is a worm. I've entitled this message from what we read in verse 4, How then can a man be justified with God? Now this is a question that has plagued the heart of men since the fall of our father Adam in the garden. We're born with a conscience. It tells us that we will one day answer to a God for the wrongdoings that we've committed in this life. Romans chapter 1 makes it plain that men are born knowing that there is a God. Starting in verse 20, we read, For the invisible things of Him from the creation of the world are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even His eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. Because that, when they knew God, they glorified Him not as God, neither were thankful, but became vain in their imaginations, and their foolish heart was darkened. Professing themselves to be wise, they became fools. The Psalms tell us, the fool has said in his heart, there is no God. Now I want to address this question, how can a man be justified with God as if everyone sitting here has never heard the gospel and has no idea who this God is of whom I'm speaking. And I want to ask the five W's, who, what, why, when, where, and throw in a how as to what it takes to justify a sinner before a holy God. First, who is this God before whom we need to be justified? Now we're told in Genesis that He is the one who created all things, that simply by the word of His power He spoke this universe and all that is in it into being. And further, we're told in John chapter 1, that it is Jesus Christ who did the creating. It says, All things were made by Him, and without Him was not anything made 
that was made. This God of whom I speak is unimaginably holy, who we're told is of purer eyes than to even look upon sin. He is a God who does what He wants, when He wants, why He wants, with whom He wants, and answers to no one. We're told in Daniel that He has His way in the army of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth, and none can stay His hand or say unto Him, What doest thou? His holy will cannot be thwarted by puny men. He's not the God of modern day religion who loves everybody and would just be tickled to death if He was able to save everybody, but puny men and their strong will thwarts His purpose constantly. He's pictured by modern religion as a God who is constantly in a state of turmoil, just looking over the gates of heaven, wringing His hands, wishing that someone might believe on Him. That is simply not the God of this Bible. He simply does not love everyone. Now, most modern religionists would be appalled at that statement because you're told from the time you're an infant, God loves you and has a plan for your life. Not only does He not love everyone, we're told plainly in the Scriptures that there are many that are born into this world, hated of God before they ever draw their first breath. Esau is a perfect example, but there are many more. This God is described as a God who will by no means clear the guilty, who will hold men and women accountable for deeds in the day of judgment. He is a God who, if He finds the slightest trace of sin on you in the day of judgment, will condemn you to an eternity of unimaginable woe and suffering. But thanks be to God, we rejoice in this fact. He is a God of love. First John tells us that God is love. The Scripture tells us that God gets no satisfaction, none whatsoever of condemning men and women to eternal hell. But it does tell us that He delights in mercy. There's numerous Scriptures that speak of His mercy, that speak of His abundant mercy, His great mercy, His tender mercy, His exceeding mercy. Micah asked the question in Micah 7.18, Who is a God like unto thee? And the answer to that, there is none. Who is a God like unto thee that pardoneth iniquity and passeth by the transgression of the remnant of his heritage? He retaineth not his anger forever. Why? Because he delighteth in mercy. That ETH at the end of delighteth means that it's a constant ongoing process that every minute of every day our God gets pleasure, if you will, gets satisfaction. To put it in human terms, it makes God happy to show mercy to undeserving sinners. But what does it mean when we say a sinner has to be justified? It is defined as follows, to free from the guilt and penalty attached to sin to demonstrate sufficient legal reason for an action to be taken. God's law must be satisfied.
before a sinner can be justified. To show or prove to be just, right, or reasonable. And we know that our God, everything he does, is done in righteousness. To declare one innocent or guiltless. To show satisfactory reason for something to be done. But I'll ask the next question. Why is it necessary for us to be justified? As I mentioned before, this God to whom we have to do is unimaginably holy, infinitely holy. He demands perfection. In Leviticus chapter 20, God had Moses instruct the nation of Israel. And in verse 7 of that chapter, we read where he says, Sanctify yourselves, therefore, and be ye holy. For I am the Lord your God, and ye shall keep my statutes and do them. I am the Lord which sanctify you. And First Peter tells us, But as he which calleth you is holy, be ye holy. In all manner of conversations, because it is written, Be ye holy, for I am holy. God demands perfection before a man or woman can enter into his presence. And we just read that God requires men and women to keep his statutes and to do them. Yet we read in Romans 3, some bad news when it comes to that. As it is written, there is none righteous. No, not one. It doesn't say there's not many righteous. It says there's absolutely none They are all gone out of the way. They are together become unprofitable. There is none that doeth good. And in case you didn't get it the first time, no, not one. Job knew this for a fact when he said in Job 9.20, If I justify myself, mine own mouth shall condemn me. If I say I am perfect, it shall also prove me perverse. So then, If perfect holiness is required to enter into the presence of a holy God and there's not one human being capable of producing that holiness, I'll ask the next question. How then does this justification take place? This is what Bildad asked. How then can a man be justified with God? The answer is that there must be a substitute found to stand in the place of a guilty sinner. This is what we refer to as the doctrine of substitution. It's a blessed doctrine. But did you know the word substitute or substitution is not found one single time in the King James Version? That doesn't mean that it's not a blessed doctrine. It's stated many other ways, but those two words are simply not used but is clearly demonstrated throughout Scripture. In Isaiah 53.11, it tells us this very thing where we read, He shall see of the travail of his soul and shall be satisfied. By his knowledge shall my righteous servant justify many. How? For he shall bear their iniquities. And if he bears or carries those iniquities, which he did, He was also required to bear the punishment for those iniquities. As a scapegoat that we read of in Leviticus 16, had the sins 
of the people of Israel laid on His head and He carried those sins into the wilderness. So our Savior had our iniquities laid upon Him and carried those iniquities into the wilderness of God's forgetfulness. Now God's divinely appointed requirement for the forgiveness of sins is the shedding of blood. Hebrews 9 tells us, And almost all things are by the law purged with blood, and without shedding of blood is no remission. This word remission is another word for absolution, forgiveness, pardon, or amnesty. So this verse clearly tells us that blood must be shed before any forgiveness, before any resolution or restitution with God takes place. And our great substitute shed His blood for the remission of our sins, not His, for ours. Turn with me to Romans 5. Romans chapter 5. Romans chapter 5. We'll read the first nine verses of this chapter. Therefore, here's this word, being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom also we have access by faith into this grace wherein we stand and rejoice in hope of the glory of God. And not only so, but we glory in tribulations also. This is what Larry spoke of a little while ago. Knowing that tribulation worketh patience, and patience experience, and experience hope, and hope maketh not ashamed, because the love of God is shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Ghost, which is given unto us. For when we were yet without strength, in due time, in God's good time, Christ died for the ungodly. For scarcely for a righteous man will one die yet, adventure for a good man, some would even dare to die. But God commendeth his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than being now justified by his blood, we shall be saved from wrath through him. This ninth verse tells us that because we are justified by his blood, we're saved from wrath through him through His finished work of reconciliation, of bringing the lost sinner to God. And a further answer as to how God justifies a sinner is this, that it is done by God giving that sinner faith. The faith that enables the sinner to see and believe on the Lord Jesus Christ for all His justification, for all His standing before the Holy God. Paul confirms this, in several of his letters. Flip over a couple more books to Galatians. Galatians chapter 3. Familiar text. Galatians 3. O foolish Galatians, who hath bewitched you that you should not obey the truth before whose eyes Jesus Christ hath been evidently set forth, crucified among you, this only would I learn of you, received ye the Spirit by works of the law, or by the hearing of faith. Are ye so foolish, having begun in the Spirit, are ye now made perfect in the flesh? 
Have ye suffered so many things in vain, yet it be, if it be yet in vain? He therefore that ministereth to you the Spirit, and worketh miracles among you, doth he it by the works of the law, or by the hearing of faith? Even as Abraham believed God, and it was accounted to him for righteousness. Know ye therefore that they which are of faith, the same are the children of Abraham. And the Scriptures, foreseeing that God would justify the heathen through faith, preached before the gospel unto Abraham, saying, In thee shall all nations of the earth be blessed. So then, they which be of faith are blessed with faithful Abraham. Verse 8 tells us that we're justified through faith. Paul told the Romans, therefore, we conclude that a man is justified by faith without the deeds of the law, without that sinner doing anything to contribute to his salvation. And verse 8 tells us that we're justified through faith. In Romans 1, we read much the same thing. Therefore, being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And Hebrews 11 makes it crystal clear how essential this faith is. It says, but without faith, it is impossible. Not just hard. It is impossible to please Him. For he that cometh to God must believe that He is, and that He is the rewarder of them that diligently seek Him. Now let me be as clear as I can be here. Simply having faith does not save a man or a woman. I can have faith that when I get in my car, it's going to take me where I want to go. Or I can have faith that when I sit down in a chair at my dining room table, that it'll hold me up. Simply having faith doesn't cut it. People like to say, just got to have faith. Keep the faith. Most of them don't even know what that means, but it's just something they say. But the Scriptures make it clear that it is not our faith. It is the object of our faith. The Lord Jesus Christ Himself, who by faith in His name is the one who saves us and who justifies us by His finished work and the imputation of that work on our behalf. It's like a man who's sinking in quicksand. He needs someone to save him from death. And one appears and throws him a rope and pulls him to safety. Now clearly it was not the rope that saved the man, but rather the one who tossed him the rope and pulled him to safety. So it is with our faith. Faith is the rope that God uses to draw us to, draw us to Christ. It's not faith that saves us. It's the object of that faith. And remember this. The Scriptures make it plain that faith is the gift of God given to some and withheld from others. And people can say that that's not right, but if God does it, it's right. It is His holy will and His holy right to do so. So it brings us to the next question. Who accomplishes this justification of which we're speaking Is it the needy sinner? We've already read in Romans that there's none righteous. Romans 8.33 gives us the answer to that question where we read, Who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect? Five simple words. It 
is God that justifieth. Could it be any plainer? It is God that justifieth. Not, it's God that justifies as much as He can, but you must do the rest. There's no caveat, sir. There's no asterisk. There's no footnote. It is God that justifieth. Now when it says it's God that justifieth, it's speaking of all three persons of the Holy Trinity. The Father chose a people in eternity, what we call eternity past, and the Son came to earth to die for those chosen people. And in time, the Spirit comes to those people, gives them life, and grants them faith to believe on Christ. This entire process is described by Paul in the first chapter of his letter to the Ephesians. Turn there with me. You can quote this, I'm sure, by heart. But let's look at it. Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians chapter 1. This describes for us the entire gambit of salvation. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God, to the saints which are at Ephesus, and to the faithful in Christ Jesus, grace be to you and peace from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who hath blessed us with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ. According as He has chosen us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before Him in love, having predestinated us unto the adoption of children by Jesus Christ to Himself according to the good pleasure of His will, to the praise of the glory of His grace, wherein He hath made us accepted in the Beloved, in whom, in Christ, in whom we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of sins according to the riches of His grace, wherein He hath abounded toward us in all wisdom and prudence, having made known unto us the mystery of His will according to His good pleasure, which He has purposed in Himself, that in the dispensation of the fullness of time He might gather together in one all things in Christ, both which are in heaven and which are on earth, even in Him, in whom also we have obtained an inheritance, an unspeakable, unimaginable inheritance. Those of us who were the children of wrath have now become children of God. That in the dispensation of fullness of time, He might gather together all things in one in Christ, which are in heaven and in earth, which are on earth, even in Him, in whom also we have obtained an inheritance, being predestinated according to the purpose of Him who worketh all things after the counsel of His own will, that we should be to the praise of His glory who first trusted in Christ, in whom He also trusted after that ye heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also after that ye believed, ye were sealed with that Holy Spirit of promise, which is the earnest of our inheritance 
until the redemption of the purchased possession unto the praise of His glory. Verse verse 5 tells us that God chose us, that He predestinated us to be His children, that He did it because He felt like it. It was according to the good pleasure of His will. And it tells us that redemption came at the cost of blood, the precious blood of Christ. Peter tells us that, that we're not redeemed with corruptible things as silver and gold, but with the precious blood of Christ. That blood which was acquired for us, the forgiveness of sins. And it was done according to these verses we read, because God is rich in grace and mercy. So we come to the next question. When does justification take place? Now the more proper question would be, when did justification take place? This is something that was accomplished long, long ago. We cannot comprehend eternity past. It doesn't even make sense, but... We have to put it in some sort of language that we can understand. When men and women talk about eternal life, you can ask most people, what does it mean to have eternal life? And they'll say, well, that's life that never ends. You're only half right. For something to be deemed eternal, it has to have no beginning and no end. And if we're told that we have eternal life, there's only one way that that would make sense that we were alive in Christ from eternity. We didn't just start having eternal life and from the time we were born, now we're going to have it. We were in Christ in eternity past. (coughs) Now one meaning of the word that we read here in Ephesians before the foundation of the world, one meaning of that word is establishment. Before this world was ever established, before mankind was ever created, our justification was set. It was sure. It was as sure as the throne of God. So if our justification took place before the foundation of the world, it should be crystal clear that the sinner has nothing to do with that justification. He doesn't add anything to it, and he certainly can't take anything away from it. Our justification does not take place, as modern day religion likes to say, when we came to the Lord, or when we found the Lord, or when we gave our heart to Jesus, or when we walked on an aisle. Those two verses in Romans make it clear, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. For if we, for if when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of His Son, much more being reconciled, we shall be saved by His life. Both of these verses make it crystal clear that our justification, our reconciliation, was secured long before we were ever born. Now basically, there are two religions in this world. Only two. Sometimes when I'm curious about things, my wife makes fun of me sometimes, I'll ask Siri. So one day I said, Hey Siri, how many religions are there in the world? You'll be astonished at this answer because I was. Siri replied to me, There are more than 10,000 distinct religions in this world. 10,000. And yet they can all be condensed 
into two categories. Works religion, where man is required to do something to contribute to his salvation or salvation by grace, what we call grace religion, God bestowing mercy upon sinners. Ours, what we believe, falls into the second category. And if you believe that all things necessary for your salvation are already done, they're already accomplished, and it's not necessary for us to do anything. But some would protest. Well, you have to believe. I've had people tell me that. Well, I have to believe. Yeah, you're right. You have to believe. But that's like saying that a newborn baby has to decide whether or not to breathe. That baby breathes because it has life. It comes naturally. That breathing that that newborn infant does is involuntary. And so it is with faith. When the Spirit comes to us in faith, we cannot help but to believe we're made alive in Christ. And as that newborn babe breathes involuntarily, I would venture to say that our belief is involuntary. We cannot help but believe any more than we can help but breathe. Now we come to our last question. Where did justification take place? And of course, in the mind and purpose of God, it took place long ago in the untold ages of eternity past. Our justification was not something God just was sitting around one day and thought this would be a good idea if I come up with some way for these people to be justified. Because in the mind and purpose of God, this entire if what we call plan of salvation, I hate to even use that term because it's abused by modern day religion, but everything necessary for our justification, for our salvation was in place. And, and because of our limited capacity to think of things in time, I, I confuse myself. It's kind of like watching a movie about time travel. I just, I can't grasp it. I just, it's beyond our thinking to understand how God thinks of everything in the present tense. There's no past with God. There's no future with God. He thinks of everything in the present tense. But there is a place in time where the event which secured our justification took place. And the answer to where the event that secured our justification took place is Jerusalem, Israel, on a hill called Golgotha. John nineteen seventeen says, And he, bearing his cross, went forth into a place called the place of a skull, which is called in the Hebrew, Golgotha, where they crucified him and two others with him, on either side one, and Jesus in the midst. There is Christ hung on that Roman tree, our justification, our redemption, our reconciliation, the forgiveness of our sins was accomplished. It was finalized when our Lord declared those words, it is finished. So there you have it, folks. The what, when, why, who, and how of justification. 
It was accomplished by the triune God in eternity past because it seemed good in His sight. And it was finalized, if you will, at Calvary when Christ died on that tree. And since we have assurance that all that is needed for our justification is long since done, we can lie down in the bosom of our Savior as He commanded us, Come unto Me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. We can snuggle up as a child snuggles in the lap of a parent. We can snuggle up to Christ and rest in Him. There's no more work to do. Our Savior is seated in glorious ease and majesty, ruling all things by the word of His power. He tells us in Matthew, All power is given unto me in heaven and earth. He's sitting in perfect ease, ruling all things in this world. So the answer to this question which Bildad asked, how then can a man be justified with God? You've heard the answer to. Now if you have not yet cast yourself at the feet of Christ and sought forgiveness and mercy, I would implore you to do so today if you're able. You're helpless to do anything for yourself. The Scriptures make that clear. We've already read that it is God that does the justifying. But our Lord promised, Him that cometh to Me I will in no wise cast out. So if you are able, cast yourself on the mercy of God. And if you're able from your heart to do that, it is a sign that God has begun a good work in your heart. Thank you for your attention. Lord bless you.